Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Snuffle up as in Mr. Snuffleupagus. That's the word of the day. Just say it with me, Snuffleupagus. How can that be the word for nothing personal today? Well, because this weekend was the 50-year anniversary of Sesame Street. And who doesn't think of Mr. Snuffleupagus when you're thinking of Sesame Street? 50 years for a show, the likes of which taught everyone how to learn what was important. It showed people of all sizes, all colors, all creeds, and it was meant to distract kids while their parents didn't want to watch them while educating kids while their parents didn't want to teach them. The word for me has always been, I would watch Sesame Street, then Electric Company. It was, remember Morgan Freeman was an Electric Company? That's when kids shows actually helped people. So to Sesame Street, I wish you a very happy anniversary. Don't ever take away Elmo, the Cookie Monster, Oscar the Grouch, all these characters who actually, as you get older, mean something. Snuffle up, I guess. Watch them if you've never seen them. Today's a great day because it's the Major League Baseball General Manager meetings in Scottsdale, Arizona. Why is that such a great day? Because this means 2020 offseason has officially begun. And it begins when Scott Boris takes the podium and starts meeting with the media. No, I'm kidding. That's not when it actually begins. It begins when all 30 teams send representatives, no owners, no team presidents. It's just presidents of baseball operations. Then you've got general managers, assistant general managers, people in charge of snacks. There's about two people per team on the snack brigade. They each get a suite at a hotel and the suites are done actually in order. So the more experience you have, so let's say if a GM has been in the game for 30 years, but then he switches teams and is starting his first year at a new team, do you know that he gets the worst seat on the worst floor near the elevators? Even though he may have seniority in general, it's how long you've been with the team. That's how suites are assigned. The general manager meetings used to be a time when all 30 teams would get together and think that this was the time that they would start laying the foundation to make trades Think about free agents and think about putting their team together. It's not the winter meetings which come in December. This is a much smaller event where it's just baseball people. There's no minor leagues. There's no people hanging out in the lobby with resumes looking for jobs. It is simply teams getting together and talking. But why have the GM meetings become something of a non-event recently? The reason is that all 30 teams now have other ways to communicate. In the old days, back when the dinosaurs roamed, teams could only communicate by telephone. They would never see each other. Now nobody sees each other. Nobody cares because all the general managers are beginning to skew younger and they do everything with this. So the general managers meetings actually become a texting frenzy between people who are sometimes literally in the room next door. So instead of a knock knock, you actually are texting back and forth, giving ideas. And then once in a while, teams will meet with each other. 
This is a very strange migration, the likes of which you probably will not see in the Serengeti. But what happens is you've got a group of people who are in one room, stand up as a group, walk to another room, and join the second room, which is the second team. So you've got about four, six, or eight people per team. They're all in one room, still snacks. Funnily enough, there's a whiteboard that is still used. Even in this era of analytics, every team has a whiteboard where they're putting down different free agent targets or different possible signings or ways to put their teams together. And what teams do when you walk in and have a meeting is they turn that whiteboard around so you won't see it. I once had a meeting with the Boston Red Sox and the Red Sox were so paranoid, this is back in the Theo days, were so paranoid that we were gonna look at their whiteboard like we actually care what they're doing, that they took the whiteboard in another room so we couldn't even see that there was a whiteboard And when we had to use the restroom, we had to go to like outside because we may come in contact with the whiteboard. And that was the same meeting where the president of the team, Larry Lacchino, who's a good guy, might I add, but Larry, you'll remember this. He had his ear to the door listening to what we were talking about. And then when we opened the door at the end, he sort of scurried away toward the elevators. I can't even imagine why that was happening. He just could have joined the meeting but then that would have changed the narrative that he's not involved in baseball operations. So there's a lot of narratives that go on. You've got baseball people, but do you really think that owners are not involved in the GM meetings? They're not there, but they are very much involved. They get called every day. So the president of baseball operations has the three jobs that he has to do during these GM meetings. The first thing is he meets with his people and sets up his team and his what he wants to do. The second thing is he meets the media once or twice a day, his local media, to talk about nothing because they never say anything because we tell our GMs never to say anything. What we do is purposeful leaking to members of the media, something that I've covered and we can talk about again. And the third call that comes normally with the accompanying eye roll obligation is a call to the owner each day to update him on what is going on because the owners are curious because they're not there. Many owners go to the winter meetings in December, but none of them go to the GM meetings. So the question is, who are we after? How did it go? Who'd you meet with? But there's never any progress. So my prediction right now for all of you on what exactly is gonna happen during these GM meetings in Scottsdale is the following. This, this, yes, The black hole of nothing is what I'm showing you. There will not be one announcement. There will not be one signing. It will just be a place where you start the groundwork and also where agents try to beg teams to increase their offers in both years and notional value. Will it matter? Yes, for the long term, but no for the next few days. Dion Waiters had a panic attack on an airplane. We all read about it, but let's dig a little deeper into it because something happened after that that is worthy of noting. The Miami Heat suspended Deion Waiters this weekend for 10 games. When you do the math for baseball, where there's 162 games, that is a 20-game suspension in baseball. That is no small suspension, the 10 games he got in a basketball season where you only play 82 games. Now, granted, he hasn't played for the Heat yet, and granted, he's already been suspended for conduct detrimental, although that's what they suspended him for this time. But remember, he was the one that beginning of the season didn't practice, didn't play. So let's really talk about what happened. It's actually very simple. Deion Waiters was with the team in Denver. Do you know what players do when they're in Denver? Yes, they visit the cannabis shops, just like everyone else who goes to Denver, because it's legal. 
What's not legal is the MBA test for it. And if you test positive for marijuana, then you go into the marijuana protocol program. If you are not in the MBA and you're just subject to random drug testing, then you probably shouldn't be doing it anyway. But let's pretend that players do it, and let's pretend that players buy things in Denver. Then let's pretend that players bring things on their charter plane where you don't go through security. The way teams do it now, just so you're aware with the TSA, we don't go through regular screening in the airports. We go to the side of the plane, and the TSA is there, and they do random wanding. So let's say three people in a traveling group get wanded, but everyone else goes right onto the plane. And the wanding is not exactly done like the doctor's office visit in Fletch. So it is not an issue when you are bringing things on the charter plane, assuming you're not going through customs by flying to Toronto or Montreal back in the day. So Dion Waiters gets on the plane, going from Denver to the next stop in Phoenix, that which is on their road trip, and then Phoenix to LA, and they have the ability on a team charter plane, they're playing cards, they're drinking, and after a team's been to Denver, I assume there's other things going on. I don't need to assume any longer. Dion Waiters was eating gummies. That's the report, that was the scoop, and that seems to have been confirmed. The thing about gummies, from what I understand, is they come in portions. So you're supposed to take, let's say, if you're doing it, if that's your thing, five milligrams or 10 milligrams. If it doesn't work well for you, you fall asleep, you hope it close your eyes and you hope it ends. If it works well for you, you may laugh a little bit, you may lose a little extra money playing cards. Dion Waiters didn't do any of that. He probably ate the entire bag, which was probably 100 milligrams. What happens when you do that is nothing good. Now, his family's been protesting that he didn't do anything like that, but what can happen when you quote-unquote overdose on gummies is you can have a grade A1 panic attack. And having a paranoid panic attack while you're on a plane is not good. You want to go to sleep and you want it to end. The first time I had a panic attack and it was not gummy-induced, I'll never forget this, panic attacks are serious. If you've had them, you know what they are. It's when you truly believe you are dying of a heart attack. But you're not, but you're sure you are. Picture yourself in a den with lions. You assume that the lions are trying to eat you and you can't get away. The fact is, you're neither in a den nor being eaten by lions, but you don't know that. So Dion Waiters had a first-class panic attack. My panic attack came on the plane to San Francisco from Miami for the first game of the divisional series round in the 2003 Major League Baseball playoffs. The reason I won't forget it is that I needed to get off the plane. So it was a chartered plane, and I went to the team trainer, who at the time's name was Sean, and I said, Sean, you have to land the plane. I'm about to die. That is actually how it felt. Sean recognized immediately that I wasn't dying, but I took a few vital signs, he looked at me, and he asked me whether I was under any stress. Stress can bring on panic attacks. I was. He sat me down in a seat, tried to calm me down because there was no way we were gonna delay the plane to San Francisco because in fact I wasn't dying. So I understand what Dion was going through. It's not pleasant. But I also understand what the Miami Heat are going through and why they chose to suspend him. The reason why you have to suspend him is A, he violated the NBA rules. B, he's gotta be made an example of how to behave on charter planes, how to pay attention to portioning and rationing, and how to take seriously the fact that he's an athlete who needs to focus on the court, given the fact 
that he so, could be the most overpaid player left side. This Deion Waiters situation is not going away any time soon. The other issue that's not going away anytime soon, one of my favorites, what's going on with the New York Knicks. I love the Knicks. They, they're my team. My greatest sports memory of my life is Patrick Ewing winning Game 7 against the Pacers in the Eastern Conference Finals 94-90 and celebrating that we were finally making it to the Finals. The Knicks haven't had a championship since 73. And James Dolan, thank God for James Dolan because he kept Jeffrey Laurier, the owner of the Marlins, out of the top one list of the worst owners in all of sports. So I've always owed James Dolan a huge level of gratitude for what he's done. But what he's doing now is beyond shocking. He brought in David Fitzdale, signed him to a four-year, $22 million deal. He opened up a ton of cap space because the president, Steve Mills, and the general manager, whose name is Scott Perry, they got together and they said what they were gonna do is build a championship team. That's what everybody said back from Isaiah Thomas and who knows who else. But guess what? They've never been able to do it and the Knicks have been a laughing stock. But it was supposed to end with this past off season and they came up empty. No Durant, no Irving, no big three, no nobody. So they ended up putting together a roster of sort of mid-level free agents, the best of whom is Julius Randle, the worst of whom is me, assuming I could be on that team. And wouldn't you know it, they're the worst team right now in the National Basketball Association. So what do they do? Well, President Steve Mills and Scott Perry go to the game in Cleveland and then call a press conference to talk about their team. Let me tell you the problem with that is when you're the coach of the Knicks and you see your front office there, it shouldn't be a big deal. Because as a front office person, I would travel with the team, let's say to 40 out of the 80 games, but we always had a GM or the president of baseball operations at every single away game. The reason we do it is we want to have representation there if there's an issue that needs to be taken care of in real time without using phone or text. But when you're never on the road, and then all of a sudden you go on the road, well then something must be going on, and the players recognize it, and it makes the players play even tighter. The coach recognizes it, and it makes the coach even tighter and more defensive. But the Knicks, as they love to do, ratcheted up an entire level. Not only did they go on the road when they normally don't, but on top of that, they called a press conference to talk about their team with no announcement to make. The only thing that was noteworthy was what Steve Mills said to me, is that the Knicks are lacking, quote, a consistent level of effort and execution. What does he mean by that when Steve Mills takes the podium and says the Knicks are missing a consistent level of effort and execution? That means, Mr. Fitzdale, coach, my friend, you're about to be fired. Because really what's missing are any good players. But the owner's not gonna fire himself, neither's the president. Now, the GM certainly may be, is it possible the GM's job is in danger? Is it possible we could have a situation where in Toronto, their GM is a free agent? You've got Masai Ujiri, who could get an absolute boatload of money to come take over the Knicks, but you're never gonna win there when James Dolan is making all the decisions, when James Dolan is in charge of everything that's going on, and then on top of that, he's denying it. So if I'm in David Fitzdale, I'm doing the following. I'm sitting down with Steve Mills, and my GM, Scott Perry, and I'm saying, listen, what you did is just put the nail in the coffin of this season. You wanna fire me? I'm gonna get paid guaranteed money. I'm good, fire me, 
make my day. But this is what you think is the right move when you're trying to build a winning atmosphere? Is that you come here and you meet the media instead of meeting with our team, instead of individually trying to figure out what we can do better, how to get better players to play in New York, how to get a better team and not make trades like Porzingis to Dallas, not getting stars that end up not being able to play. Instead, you think selling me down the river is going to improve our record on the court? Well, isn't that funny? That's why the Knicks have been bad for so long. And there's an entire generation of kids who were born and are now in college, and they've never sniffed a meaningful game in June. That's, uh, you know, rich people need to start buying teams because the prices are so high. And so when you're looking like, you know, Steve Ballmer from Microsoft, you saw him if you watched Inside Bill's Brain, which we reviewed last week on Nothing Personal. And if you did see that, then I thank you so much for both subscribing, rating, and telling your friends. Give it a five star. Follow me on David P. Sampson Twitter because we're, we're going to keep going with this show. But if you watched that, you saw Steve Ballmer. Yes, that very awkward guy who became super rich with Microsoft, and now he's the coolest owner of the Clippers ever. And I don't mean that just as comparing him to Donald Sterling. On his own, he's a super cool guy. Why is it important for leagues to get hugely rich, successful people into their ownership ranks? Well, it's actually pretty clear to me why. And the answer is because teams are going for multi-billions of dollars. Instead of putting together a 100 people who can each put in $10 million or $20 million, why not get a guy who can just write a check by himself? Well, one of those men is in the news today, and his name is Jeff Bezos. Why is he in the news today? Because there's a rumor that he is going to buy a National Football League team. That may be true, but what I can tell you is there are three leagues right now who are trying to get Bezos into their ownership ranks. The first one is the NFL, the second one is the NBA, and the third one is Major League Baseball. And the reason why it's so critical to get him, think about what he could mean as an owner in the National Football League or for any team. Just imagine the synergies with Amazon. Can you imagine Amazon delivering your concessions to your seat? Can you imagine Amazon and their drones delivering merchandise to your house that you buy in stadium? Can you imagine Amazon on the jersey of a team and what that can do for his brand. He's the perfect co-brand mingling guy. But here's what else he's good at. He's ahead of every other owner in sports, not just in net worth, but in brain capacity. He thinks about ways to maximize revenue, shareholder value, and if it means that little mom and pop stores go broke on the corner, so be it. If it means there's nowhere to buy anything except online at amazon.com, Guess what? Get on his truck because his truck is leaving the dock. And if you're, that's a mixed metaphor, it would be a boat, although trucks do have docks. Thank you, Coca. Get on that truck because the world's changing. If you're a mom and pop owner of a store, Amazon's coming to get you. And if you're in football and you want your assets to keep going up, you gotta find the richest people in the world to buy your teams, to invest in your product, and to vigorously defend the revenue and the values that your league has. Jeff Bezos will buy a team because what's interesting is he may be the richest guy on the planet, but he'll talk to Steve Ballmer who will tell him that owning a professional sports team completely changes your Q rating. Instead of being sort of the awkward guy 
who doesn't really want to be on TMZ but does things to put himself on TMZ, he then becomes the cool guy at every party. People won't even want to talk to him about delays in shipping. Hey, we tried to get it to you today, but it's running late. No, no one will talk to him about that. They'll talk to him about his involvement in whatever league he chooses to be in. He will be an owner in a professional sports league team in approximately two years at most. Well, there's a current player right now who is uh, doing something that's never been done in all of Major League Baseball, and I'm not sure why. And he is sort of an eccentric guy, and we talked about him a lot on CBS Sports HQ. But Trevor Bauer, do you know that name? Trevor Bauer was traded. He was on Cleveland. Cleveland was trying to make the playoffs. They were trying to catch Minnesota in the AL Central. And at the deadline, they traded Trevor Bauer to the Cincinnati Reds, which was shocking at the time because the Reds were going nowhere. And this was really a trade for 2020, not for 2019. Trevor Bauer, yes, you may remember the video. He took the ball from Terry Francona, the manager of the Indians, the last time he ever pitched for the Indians. He, instead of giving the ball to his manager, which is what you do when you're being taken out of the game, he turned around from the pitcher's mound and threw the ball into the stands over the center field wall. Now, that may sound impressive, like the little boy at the end of Jerry Maguire who throws the ball all the way into the field at the Little League game. I get you, that's impressive. What's not impressive is showing up your manager like that, and what happened to Bauer is he got traded immediately. But that's not where his eccentricities end. Trevor Bauer has also gone public saying something that I never thought I'd hear any player say, and it's the only thing he's ever said that I actually tend to agree with him on. He said that he'll never sign a multi-year deal. He wants to go year to year his whole career. Now, I take that with a bunch of cynicism. I don't know that I've tweeted about it or talked about it on Nothing Personal, but my view of that, were it to be anyone other than Trevor Bauer, would be every player, you heard the wait to see last week with Cole Hamels getting a a one-year deal, because that's all he's gonna get, so he came out and said he wants that. Trevor Bauer coming out to say all I want are one-year deals is strange because he would be eligible for a multi-year deal once he becomes a free agent at the end of the 2020 season. He's gone year to year through arbitration. What arbitration means is he has to hire a lawyer to represent him during a case against his then team, the Cleveland Indians. He has to pay him a lot of money and then win the arbitration, which he's actually done two years in a row. But what Trevor Bauer did should send shivers down the spine of agents like Scott Boris or other agents in agencies that are actually good agencies who actually care about their players, who actually care about the game of baseball. He left Wasserman Agency. Wasserman Agency is a great agency that represents Giancarlo Stanton. I've dealt with uh, their agents often. Uh, Joe Wolf is one of the best agents in baseball, uh, Stanton's agent. Adam Katz, who is Hanley Ramirez's agent and a bunch of other players, uh, is a mensch as well. Uh, and so Trevor Bauer left them. He was poached is what the word is. When players go from one agency to another, there's poaching that goes on every day. But that's not what Trevor Bauer did. He actually had no problem with the Wasserman agency. He didn't say that he didn't like the representation. What he said is that he had an interest in working for his friend who he met in UCLA. Her, his friend was named Rachel Luba. Rachel Luba started an agency. And wouldn't you know it that her agency get ready for it, has one client. Guess who? Her friend Trevor Bauer. 
But Rachel Luba can't really represent him in his arbitration, so Trevor Bauer had to hire someone else to handle his arbitration case that he's going to have with the Cincinnati Reds this year. You see, Trevor Bauer has one more year of arbitration, and he's going to make a lot of money. And he didn't want to give away the 5% of his money that you have to give away to your agent when you have deals, whether they're an arbitration or a free agency. So he didn't want to keep giving away 5% of his money, so he decided to work with an agency where they're going to charge him, generally speaking, by the hour. Epic. Actually paying an agent for the work they're doing. Relax, everyone at UTA. I'm not headed that direction. I'm just telling you that in baseball, if you can get an agent who will agree to represent you by the hour, and this agent actually has a clue of what he or she is doing, you could be changing the entire system of how players are represented. The way to see here, which is not the way to see of our show, is whether or not Rachel Luba, who is going to be charging by the hour, can make the economics work and can actually represent him as a new agent. This year, it's not going to be a big deal because he's not a free agent. But next year, everything changes. He only wants a one-year deal, so he says. So he's got to go out to 29 teams, 30 if you count the Reds, and actually negotiate for the best possible deal. Because the difference between a Trevor Bauer on a one-year deal and, let's say, a Garrett Cole on a seven- or eight-year deal, there's only a very small universe of teams who are willing to sign a pitcher or even a position player for such a long-term deal. But for a one-year deal, you've got 30 teams who will go get special put-aside ownership money to say, listen, let's try Trevor Bauer for one year. If he doesn't work out, he's gone. We can pay him $30 million. I know that's a lot of our payroll, but we can win. Let's try it. So Rachel Luba has to be working overtime hourly, trying to find one team out of the 30, bid them all up against each other because her universe is going to be that big. So I'm not actually surprised surprised that Trevor Bauer is doing this. I'm interested to see how it's going to work. I don't believe this will be a thing because agents have a way of making players feel better because they're with the players from when they're young, 17, 18 years old, all the way through to when they become free agents, those who don't get poached, and they develop relationships, familiar relationships. It's not just about business in most cases, not in all cases. So let's watch very carefully as Trevor Bauer again goes down the road, never taken. If you weren't paying attention yesterday, something happened. And judging by my view of the world, uh, people weren't paying attention. But it was a big deal, at least from my standpoint. The Seattle Sounders won the MLS Cup. For a dollar, Mortimer, who did the Seattle Sounders beat? Anyone? Bueller? Were you watching? It was Toronto. Second cup for Seattle. 70,000 people at Century Link Field in Seattle where the Seahawks play. The largest non-concert crowd in the history of Century Link. MLS must be doing great. The league is prospering. Seattle is thriving. Did you know the cup was yesterday? Did you think that was the Stanley Cup Finals? The NBA Championship? The World Series? How about the Super Bowl? How about the World Cup for the men's national team? How about the World Cup for the women's national soccer team? Do you know where the Women's Cup took place this year? It took place in Lyon, France. Do you know who won the Women's World Cup? I bet you do. 
I don't think you know who won the MLS Cup. And the reason I don't is it was played at 3 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon in front of a TV audience that was average to below average, in front of people outside of Seattle who frankly don't care. Let's examine why. Well, MLS was started because, and it was started many, many years ago, long before Don Garber became the commissioner, and it was started because the view was that soccer is the global sport. The first clue that we should have had that the MLS has a problem is that in the rest of the world, it's called football. You say, hey, do you want to go to the soccer game when you're in other countries? And they look at you as though you have three eyes. It's called football. But here in America, for whatever reason we call it soccer, I can only imagine because football was taken. So, it's got the wrong name. The second thing it has is no superstars. Okay, I hear you tweeting right now. David Beckham was in MLS. He was part of the Los Angeles Galaxy. That was a deal done by the MLS trying to change the way MLS got superstars from across the pond. But the way it happened before David Beckham, the way it's happened since David Beckham, is the only big-time players who come to the MLS are players who cannot make the big money over in the European leagues and players who really are toward the end of their contract. Do you really think are toward the end of their real earning power? Do you think for a minute that Lionel Messi is going to come play for the new Miami soccer team? Do you think he's going to go play in Los Angeles while he can still do what he's doing and be a far bigger name? You talk Ronaldo, you talk Messi, you're talking about the big boys of sports. They make LeBron James and Shaquille O'Neal and Michael Jordan and Mike Trout and John Stan and Aaron Judge. They all look like chumps compared to these guys in terms of worldwide popularity, earning power, endorsements, all of it. So in order to be the best, you have to have the best. And in MLS, you don't have the best. So what do they have? They've got a team that's now expanding. It looks like Charlotte could become their 30th team. Right now, building is being built about one mile from where I sit here today, where the Miami team is going to play in the city of Fort Lauderdale because they couldn't get a stadium deal done in Miami. I can't imagine why they couldn't get a stadium deal done in Miami. I thought everyone could get a stadium deal done in Miami. Anyway, I digress. So Google it if you don't know that story. So in any case, MLS has a situation where they've got to find a way to increase revenue, build revenue, because what do they want? They want their franchises to increase in value, and they want to find a way to increase their league-wide revenue. Now, they've come out and said that they've got 24 new corporate partners, and they've come out and said that they have great attendance, and they showed the Seattle attendance all the way down to the bottom of the heap, where there were maybe 12000 per game, up to the top where you're getting 50000 per game. Guess what? None of that has anything to do with league-wide revenue. By the end of tomorrow's show, I could have 24 corporate partners too. All I'd have to do is call companies I know and say, I'd love to be your partner. Please sponsor nothing personal. And the total cost is $1.50. You see, we can play games when we run teams. We can have press conferences. We can have announcements about all these new partnerships we have. And sometimes they really don't mean anything because we're not telling you the amount of money we're getting. Or sometimes we do even better. We tell you the amount of money we're getting, but we don't tell you what we're giving. We may be getting $5 million a year, so we can say, we signed this huge sponsorship. We're getting $5 million a year. Look at how great our sales guys are. Look at how great our franchises are and how healthy we are. What I'm not telling you is I had to give them $6 million worth of assets between tickets, player appearances, signage, 
all the things that we offer as a team that have a book value. So anytime you hear someone announcing all these great new partnerships and sponsorships, you really don't have to believe them. That's a little bonus insight during this segment about Major League Soccer. But the big problem in soccer is not just the fact that they can't increase the revenue, it's that they've increased the cost of expansion. That's called expansion fees. They're now up to almost $200 million, which means that there are rich people who believe that they're willing to spend $200 million to get an MLS team in their city. But then they need a stadium, then they need fans, then they need revenue. And in order to get all those things, they're going to need players. And right now, MLS has a problem because they're involved in a collective bargaining discussion with their players who are threatening to strike. And the reason they're threatening to strike, which would be the single worst thing for the MLS, as a matter of fact, I believe MLS could even go so far as to fold or contract if there is a prolonged player strike, because I don't think the teams will have the cash flow to survive. What are they fighting over? Now in the NBA and NFL and MLB, you've got very sophisticated unions who are, who are really fighting over very sophisticated issues, at least everywhere but MLB, where they're a little behind in terms of Tony Clark running that union. But what they're fighting about are working conditions, like being a charter, going on a charter plane is something the MLS players want because they view that they get more tired and they, when they're traveling commercially, they want more charter planes. They want fewer bus rides. They want more salary. Well, that's a real issue. They want the money to go up. They want true free agency. There is no true free agency in MLS. There are players who are actually put to different teams, and there are players who are basically, you are constricted as to where you can possibly go. True free agency is any player, any amount of money, no cap on payroll. That is when you have the ultimate free agency. Of course, I'm in favor of free agency every year. I've pushed that in Major League Baseball forever. I'd love there to be no long-term deals. But my point is that Major League Soccer is way behind. And the man leading it is a man named Don Garber. Don Garber is trying to get to the, the big boys table of commissioners, which is led by Roger Goodell, Rob Manford. You've got Adam Silver with the NBA. Then you've got Gary Bettman, who's sort of hanging on to that table by a thread with the NHL. Then you've got Don Garber, who's really sort of a bit on the children's table. He so badly wants to sit with the adults. He feels like he's close, like he's old enough to understand the conversations, but he doesn't quite have a seat at the table. Well, for him to have a seat at the table, he's going to need to get a collectively bargained agreement with his players. He's going to have to have a league that survives and thrives in all these expansion markets, which have, frankly, he's expanded really quickly, which gives me great cause for concern. And he's going to have to get the best players in the world. In Major League Baseball, in the NBA, in the NFL, we've got and they've got the best players in those sports in the entire world. MLS will be nothing but a minor league, basically, sport and a minor league league until it starts getting its best players. And to do that, they're going to need to change their rules and there needs to be a way to pay as much as those great football players get paid over in Europe. One of the uh, one of the things that means a lot to me, it's uh, today's Veterans Day, and uh, you see a lot on Twitter right now, and it's uh, everyone thanking veterans. I think it's nice to thank veterans on Veterans Day. Do you know what's even nicer? It's to thank veterans when it's not Veterans Day. It's to, it's to employ veterans when you have a chance to employ a veteran. It's to thank a veteran when you meet them. When, right now, when we board a plane, 
right? You, they get to board first. That's nice, but wouldn't it be nicer if when you see the, the person boarding first that you take the time on the plane to thank them for their service? Because without our veterans, there'd be no nothing personal, which would be great for maybe a few of you, but there'd be no sports, there'd be no entertainment, there'd be nothing. It'd be sort of like the man in the high castle. Watch that show. So I would like to personally thank the veterans, not today. I'm not thanking you today. I'm gonna thank you 364 other days, but today is for the people who choose just to do it today. But in honor of Veterans Day, I wanna give you my top five veterans movies of all time. And this is absolutely in order. The number five ranked film is a film called Thank You For Your Service. It's a brand new film by uh, with someone named Miles Teller. Miles Teller's been in a bunch of great movies, including Whiplash, you've seen him. This is a very serious film about what it's like. The main theme of all of these top five is what happens when you are done serving your country, when you get back into the real world. Think about American Sniper and how hard it was to get back into the real world. Well, thank you for your service. To me, is the best example of any movie I've seen currently, but it only cracks my top five at number five. The number four movie, however, is a movie that may be too old for some of you, but not for others, Born on the Fourth of July, directed by Oliver Stone. Starring Tom Cruise playing a real-life veteran, Ron Kovac, it's a true story, and what happened when he came back from war and how he became an activist. Tom Cruise got nominated for an Oscar for this movie. It is not one of, if you don't like Oliver Stone because, like, of JFK, or you think that he's too, uh, he has all these conspiracy theories, ignore yourself and go see Born on the Fourth of July. This movie, if you're doing a double feature, you may not want to watch all five of these at once because they're heavy. This is a heavy movie with a really, really good Tom Cruise. My number three movie is one of my all-time favorites. It's an older movie called Coming Home with John Voight and Jane Fonda. Now, why is Coming Home so interesting to me? Uh, first of all, John Voight won the Oscar, just an incredible actor. Jane Fonda is great in this movie. It has one of those, thank God, the one guy in the studio, there's a man named Randy who I work for with, and he's the only one who can appreciate some of my old culture. But this is a movie that if you haven't seen it, go to it. It has one of the most harrowing scenes of all time but with Bruce Stern. But if you have an understanding of what it is to have Jane Fonda, you know, she was known sort of for her involvement and her activism, uh, but that as a feminist, but that's not who she is. Above all that, she's a great actress. Go see Coming Home. Number two, I've gotten fights with people over number two. It's called Legends of the Fall. Brad Pitt, Anthony Hopkins. And the reason why uh, I want people to see it, I don't necessarily view this as a veterans movie like the others on this list. But the reason it is, is the entire movie is the premise of it, is it's about what happens when three brothers go to war and only two come home, and what happens with those two brothers, how their lives both get impacted. One brother goes one way, one brother goes the other way, and there's a father, Anthony Hopkins, who's trying to hold it together. It is one of the most powerful movies I've ever seen. It has acting performances that are first rate, Legends of the Fall is my number two veterans movie. My number one veteran movie is everybody's number one, and if it's not, do a new list. It's called The Deer Hunter with Robert De Niro. Why? Do, what do you know about The Deer Hunter? Well, it won Best Picture. Christopher Walken won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And why is it so interesting and harrowing? 
every scene in this movie is meant to try to explain to you in real terms what it means to serve your country and then to come home and to have an inability to be allowed to adjust. It's why there is still so many organizations trying to help veterans adjust into the real world, back into the world where there is no war. And The Deer Hunter is the single movie that handled both of these things in the best possible way. Look it up right now. Stream it right now. If you have to choose an order in which to watch these movies, and I know Coca is only going to watch one of them, Coca, The Deer Hunter, watch it right now. So to all the veterans, not thank you today. Every other day I will. You now have my top five list of movies which are owed, odes to veterans. I'm lucky enough where I get to do uh, picks every day. And what I love really about our picks is that uh, they're good and we're winning. So in the beginning, you had to fade me, and that's betting parlance for go against me. But now, I think I deserve the benefit of the doubt. I think you have to go my direction. So my pick of the day is actually one that uh, you're going to be a little surprised. Yep, I'm taking the Seahawks. How can that be, getting six and a half points from the undefeated Niners? I'm doing one better. I want you to go the money line. I think the Niners will lose for the first time this season against the Seahawks. There's no way the Niners are going to catch the Dolphins as the only undefeated team and make it all the way through the Super Bowl. As a matter of fact, I would argue persuasively that an ownership group wants his team to not be undefeated because they don't want to be the Patriots back when they were undefeated and made it all the way to the Super Bowl just to lose to the underdog Giants. So they're looking for a loss. And I think this is a prime time. I think Pete Carroll is, to me, is top one or two coaches in the NFL. And this line is more reflection. Russell Wilson should never be getting six and a half. I just don't believe a team like the Seattle Seahawks, when they're playing a team like the Niners, who I think are obviously overperforming with their current record. But this is a Russell Wilson bet. If you're sort of wimpy, take the six and a half and be satisfied winning. If you want to try to win a little more, take the money line and look for an absolute outright win because we're going to get it tonight with the Seahawks. The other thing that I do every single day and I love doing is the wait to see. Well, wait to see because we're going to give you accountability and we're going to tell you when we're right and when we're wrong. And I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be right tonight. Tonight starts a full week of MLB awards. We're starting with the rookie of the years. You're going to hear about them every single day this week on Nothing Personal as it builds toward the MVP and the Cy Young Award winners. But tonight we start with the Rookie of the Year. Why is the MLB Rookie of the Year going to be the least exciting of these announcements? Because it's a runaway. I lost a wait to see last week when I thought Pete Alonso would get a silver slugger, and I thought he'd get another award after. This is the award today. Pete Alonso will be the National League Rookie of the Year. For all of you listening in Atlanta, and I've already heard from some of you who have said that Mike Soroka deserves it, Mike Soroka does not deserve it. He's a pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. He will be on the podium, but he will not be the rookie of the year. Pete Alonso, New York Mets, who could end up having a really, really good week. That's sort of like a triple-layered wait to see. But let's start with Pete Alonso as my rookie of the year pick. The second wait to see is who will win the American League rookie of the year. You can press pause or forward through these next 30 seconds because it's over. 
It's Jordan Alvarez of the Houston Astros. If you watched him in the postseason, you watched him struggle and you thought to yourself, is this guy worthy of being on the Houston Astros who could possibly win a World Series? Was Alvarez the reason why they lost in seven games to the Washington Nationals? Is there anyone in the American League who can come even close? Shouldn't it be Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? No, it's Jordan Alvarez in a landslide, in a unanimous landslide. That's the double way to see that Alvarez wins Rookie of the Year in the American League, and it is unanimous. He is alone on the podium. There'll be other people, there'll be a second and third. He will get all first place votes. There'll be a few people to give to Soroka maybe in the National League. So my choice is Alonzo National League, write it down, Alvarez American League, and my bonus way to see is that Jordan Alvarez will be unanimous. At the end of these shows, I like to talk about business versus pleasure and nothing personal, but I need to mention something. Uh, I heard from someone who said to me, you know, you shouldn't talk so much about money on your show. Let me explain why I talk about money in business, because A, that is my show, but here's why it's so important. Because so much goes on in the sports world, in the entertainment world, where people have a complete misunderstanding of why things are said, and I'm here to decode it. And at the end of every decoding, I will tell you why things are done, but they're always done for the same reason. Because it's business. It's nothing personal. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.